jumping here. Today we're going to talk about a time when uh, Jesus maybe gets hangry. It looks like at least Jesus gets hangry. Um, uh, actually, kind of some some weird stories today at the beginning of, of this chapter. We're in Mark chapter 11 and Mark chapter 12. Just so you know, for the next five and a half depending on how you break up Mark 16, this is the next six chapters, we'll say it, for the next six chapters, we will only be covering one week. Uh, everything in the next six chapters all happens in one week. And so that ought to say something to us because we just spent 10 chapters. Mark, Mark just uh, covered roughly three years in 10 chapters. All right, so three years in 10 chapters, and now we're slowing down and zooming in so close um, that we will spend uh, a whole... Uh, five chapters just on this last week before Jesus is crucified. We call it the Passion Week. Um, and there's a whole lot that, that goes into it. And, and more than anything, um, this just tells you that Mark, uh, Mark knows what the key point of the story is. And, and Mark knows where he wants to draw your attention and where he wants you to be noticing and thinking the most. Uh, so we'll just do kind of a quick overview of, of the, uh, the text here and then we'll dig in at a specific point as our habit has been. Um, Mark 11, 1 through 11 is the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He comes in over the, over the Mount of Olives there and down into the city. And as he does this, his disciples and then a number of others in the crowd there, which there would have been tons of people, uh, Jerusalem during Passover uh, expanded uh, many times over during Passover because it was a pilgrimage festival. So all the Jewish men, all the faithful Jewish men, traveled to Jerusalem for that week. And so there would be people crammed into the city and then all up the side of the Mount of Olives kind of camped out there because there wouldn't even be room for all of them in the city. And so there's all these tents and all these people camped up the side of the mountain as Jesus begins to come over the crest of the hill. And as he does this, uh, they start grabbing uh, palm branches and waving those. And they start laying down their cloaks and laying those before Jesus. And all of these are signs of treating Jesus as a conquering king, as a victorious king coming into town. They're, they're greeting him as such and he's going with it now this is kind of interesting because jesus has if you remember we call it the messianic secret up to this point jesus has kept his identity somewhat secrets not because he doesn't want people to know but because they have a wrong idea of what the messiah is and so when people call him the messiah he tells them shh and and he he tells people to kind of keep that a secret uh, but but here he actually seems to be publicly kind of embracing that uh, he rides, he, he actually orchestrates to get um, the animal to ride in on, and he's, he, he doesn't stop them when they're praising, uh, praising him as he goes down. He kind of lives this out. This is actually, just kind of side note, uh, 200 years earlier when a guy named Judas Maccabees uh, conquered the oppressive, uh, it would have been Seleucid Empire, um, this group that had been oppressing the Jewish people, he conquered them and won freedom for them, and then he rode into town on uh, rode into town as everybody waved palm branches, and then he went in and he cleansed the temple at that point. And so this was like they they knew what was going on here um, when Jesus is doing this, and Jesus knows what's going on. The one difference is that he doesn't ride in on a war horse; he rides in on a donkey, 
as a way, I, again, I think of even though he's, he's taking on that Messiah title a little bit, the donkey speaks of humility. And not only that, but it's also a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice, daughter Zion, Jerusalem, your king is coming to you, but it says, humble and riding on a donkey. And so um, he's actually fulfilling that prophecy as he does those things. And, and if people are watching, they see this, this looks like a king, but this is kind of different than a king. And then Jesus walks into town, and, and here's what Mark says. It's, the end of this story is somewhat anticlimactic. Um, in chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus comes in. Everybody's singing his praises. He rides in. He hops off the donkey, and then it says this. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he rides into town, everybody's going, he goes into the temple courts, looks around for a second, and then he goes right back and goes right back over the mountain into Bethany, which is kind of odd a little bit at first, it seems. And then we come to these two stories that are uh, some of the, seemingly at least, some of the most uncharacteristic stories about Jesus. They are Jesus where he, at least on the surface, uh, appears to be the least Jesus-like, the least Christ-like. Um, in all these stories. And so you'll see here there's a pattern, by the way. You have a story about the temple. You're going to have a story about a tree. You're going to have a story about a temple and then a tree. So we're, we're here, right here in 11, 12 through 14. Jesus is walking into town on that day from Bethany. Each night they go out to Bethany and then they come back in in the morning into Jerusalem. He's walking into town. He sees this fig tree in the distance and it's got leaves on it. And so it says he's hungry. And Jesus goes up to the tree and he looks to see if there's any figs, but there's no figs on it because it's the season, it's not the season for figs. And Mark is very clear about this in his story. He says, he went to find, but there weren't any because it was not the season for figs. This is not the time when you look for figs on a tree and Jesus is looking for figs on a tree. And when there aren't any figs there, Jesus curses it and and walks away from it. Says, may, may no fruit ever grow on you again. All right, which does sound like anger, at least. On the, it sounds like, man, he, is, he was really hungry, all right, to, to, to want a tree to die because it didn't have food for him. Um, and then he goes from there and he marches into the temple. And this time he does not just uh, look around in the temple. This time he begins turning over the tables of the money changers that are there. There's an exchur- uh, a currency exchange because you have, to, you have to have a specific kind of coin to pay the temple tax. And so they're doing currency exchange there. He flips that table over. Um, he, Mark doesn't tell us this part, but he actually fashions a whip and he uses that whip and he begins driving out the money changers. He, he drives out those who are selling animals for sacrifice and those who are buying. And he also won't let anyone carry any vessels through the temple courts. I think it says goods in the CSB. The word is vessels, and it probably implies like the uh, ceremonial vessels that are being used in the temple practices, and he won't let anybody do that. And he starts uh, shouting out these, uh, these phrases, these kind of verses from the Bible, these scriptures as he does this. And uh, again, it would appear at first, d- Jesus' disciples have to be thinking, man, he's having a really rough day. Um, cursing fig trees and losing it on money changers, um, using a, a homemade little bullwhip there in the temple courts and, and slashing at people with all that. He won't let anybody carry stuff through. It's this really odd and crazy moment. And then, uh, by the way, we, we call this uh, 
generally, and actually it's even in the heading of your Bible, I believe, most of the Bibles, the heading there calls it the cleansing of the temple. Uh, but that's probably actually not a good name for it, which we'll, we'll discuss why in just a bit. Uh, in the very next story, G, uh, Mark draws our attention back to this tree. They had gone back to Bethany for the night, and as they're walking in, they look, and the disciples see the tree. And this time, there are no leaves on it. It says that it's dead and withered from the roots up. Uh, overnight, this thing had died, and the disciples call attention to it. Look, the tree you cursed. I don't know if may, they may have thought that he was literally just angry at it, um, not knowing that he, he literally was cursing it. They said, the tree that you cursed is dead. And, and then Jesus takes that, and he goes into this kind of like, random illustration, uses it as kind of this random object lesson on prayer uh, from there. And so you have this pattern here that I think is going to become significant when we look at it. But these stories are a little bit odd. In fact, especially uh, the fig tree one. This one, this one people believe probably, even, even like liberal scholars who don't trust the Bible believe this happened. And this is probably why they, they would say this is why Jesus got crucified because of the ruckus he caused in the temple. This was his ultimate undoing. Uh, but, but a lot of people uh, who, scholars who don't necessarily trust the scriptures really aren't sure about this one, this thing with Jesus cursing the tree, and, and others have been sort of embarrassed about it um, over time, but, but we'll come back to that and, and look at it. From here, what you get into as you move into chapter 12 is this series of confrontations that takes place between Jesus and uh, some of the religious leaders there at the time. Uh, read verse 27, actually, so it's not, it doesn't start in Sorry, I skipped a spot. There should be, we should have started in 1127 here. Um, 11, let me see if I can find that there. Yep, 1127. Uh, Reading that real quick says this. They came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, they may mean by that all your teaching, all the things that you're doing. They, they may kind of mean generally that, but specifically what they're probably talking about is, is that whole scene in the temple yesterday. Who, who gives you the right? Who, who do you think you are that you can just walk inside Jerusalem's temple? It's, uh, the temple is everything to them, by the way. It's not just their religious center. It's their bank. It's their center of commerce. It's their kind of, in some sense, kind of political center. It is everything. And you think, and you have no authority. You have no connections to anyone. You're not with any of the major parties. And you feel like you can just walk in and just start uh, driving people out and controlling what's going on. They ask him, where does this authority come from? Jesus uh, answers their question by not answering their question. Uh, He says, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you where I get my authority from if you'll tell me where John the Baptist got his authority from. When he came and baptized people, calling them to repent, um, by what authority did he do that? Where did that come from? Was that from God or was that just from John? Was that from human beings? And they don't answer the question. They know in that moment they're trapped because if they say, well, it was from God, he was a prophet, then Jesus gets to turn on them and say, then why didn't you listen to him? And if they say, well, it it was just John, it's just some crazy guy in the desert talking to people, they know they can't say that either because the people loved John and they don't want the people to turn on them. And so they just say, we don't know. And Jesus says, fine, you want to answer my question, I won't answer yours. 
And, and this series of, actually, I could have put temple over here too because most of these confrontations take place in the temple courts. Um, actually, I think all of this, the rest of this is all in the temple courts here. And so you'll see this series of confrontations that come out from there. Jesus first tells a story about these tenant farmers who lease a vineyard from an owner. Uh, and, and time comes for the harvest and the owner, Jesus says, wants some of the fruit from it. It's his, it's his vineyard. He's just letting them rent it, letting them use it. And so he sends to get some fruit. He sends a servant and the, the tenant farmers won't listen to the servant. Instead, they beat him and send him away with nothing. So he sends another servant and they beat him and send him away with nothing. So he sends another servant and they kill that guy. And off and on, they're killing people or beating them or whatever, but they don't listen to anyone. Finally, the owner says, that's fine. I'll send my son. Surely they'll listen to him. And he sends the son, and they think in their minds, Jesus says, they think in their minds, this is the heir. If he dies, there's no one left to inherit this place. It becomes ours. And so they kill the son. And Jesus ends the story by going, what do you think the owner's going to do to people who treat his son and his servants like that? Dude, he's going to come, he's going to kill them. He's going to kill every last one of them, he's going to give the vineyard to someone else. And the leaders know in that moment what Jesus is talking about, because... In the Old Testament, in multiple places, God's people, Israel, are referred to as a vineyard. Sometimes as a vine, sometimes as a vineyard. And, and so he knows that the tenant farmers are them, the religious leaders. They've been charged with taking care of God's people. And Jesus is accusing them of using that for their own benefit and refusing to give any of it to God. And so now he says, just so you know, um, God's coming and will bring judgment on you for these things. Um, there's a few other kind of things. They try to trap him with uh, questions about, uh, about paying taxes to Caesar because Caesar is a Roman Gentile ruler. Should we do those things? So they, they try to uh, trap him with something about that. They try to ask him about um, the resurrection. The Sadducees was this specific group of people. They were actually the ones who were kind of in charge of the temple area, and they did not believe in life after death. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And so they try to prove to Jesus that there's no such thing, um, and Jesus kind of proves them wrong. And then somebody comes and asks him the greatest commandments. This is the one person who seems to be somewhat sincere, really wants to know what are the greatest commandments, and Jesus says, who knows, whether well, the greatest commandment and the second one right after it is what? There you go, the Shema. You should love the Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second one is like it, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And, uh, and when the guy goes, you're right, I think, I think you're right, Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom. You're close. Um, and then uh, the chapter closes with Jesus taking a little bit of a tirade against the scribes, against the, some of the religious leaders as hypocritical. Um, he, he rebukes them publicly, and then he praises this poor widow who comes into the temple, and in the offering there, she gives these two coins, the last two coins she has. So he rebukes these people for wanting to be recognized as awesome and pious and, and uh, well-seen, and then he praises this woman who nobody even notices, um, who goes in and is truly willing to give everything she has. So this is kind of the flow of these couple chapters here. Most of it revolves around the temple, except for these two stories right here. 
And that's what I want to get into. Uh, that's what I want to get into with uh, the last 15, 20 minutes we got here. Um, I want to actually read through those together just so we can get our bearings in them and make sure we're grasping what's going on here. Chapter 11, starting in verse 12. Here's the first fig tree episode. The next day, when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seen in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, as I said, this is a bit of a strange story, and one that has embarrassed Christian scholars for some time. Uh, Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist philosopher, wrote this essay that's also famous called Why I'm Not a Christian. And he actually references this story in his essay. And he says, listen, this story shows uh, that Jesus is clearly lacking in both wisdom, because he doesn't know when the season for figs are, and, and in character, because he, he doesn't have enough self-control to not flip out on a tree when it doesn't have figs, which it wasn't supposed to anyway. And so Bertrand Russell lifts this story up as, as one of the reasons that he doesn't, either A, he doesn't trust the Bible, that's what a number of people say, is the disciples must have just misheard Jesus, they must have misunderstood him, and so this story got written in even if it wasn't fully there, or another theory is that this story got added in much later. Uh, but, but we don't have any evidence of that. We don't have any evidence that this story was added in later. This, was, this is there in all the earliest manuscripts we have. Uh, and so the question we need to ask when we see something that we don't quite understand, that doesn't seem, quite seem to make sense, is, is there something deeper going on here? And, and I believe there is. There's actually a hint at that. Look at what it said in verse 14, the end of it. After Jesus curses it, it says this, and his disciples heard it. Okay, now listen. They've heard everything he said. They've been around all that, like, they've been around for everything. Why does Mark feel like he has to let you know, by the way, his disciples heard it? He, he wants you to catch that Jesus is saying this for their benefit. Jesus wanted them to hear what he said. All right? And then we come to uh, the story of the temple. Verses 15 through 18 says this, They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the table of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Now this story is more famous than the fig tree one, but it also has uh, a, a little bit of difficulty around it, and the exact reason for Jesus' actions can sometimes be a little bit fuzzy. Um, usually we're told that it was because they were selling animals in there. And, and that was my understanding uh, all growing up. It's because they had turned this temple area into a marketplace. And they were profiting off of it and all those things. And they're selling and it was loud and noisy and not really a good place for prayer. Um, that might have a little bit to do with it. But I don't, I don't think that's the big issue. Uh, this is, the temple is a place where sacrifices are to be offered. And, and sacrifices can't be offered if you don't have animals there. Uh, to be able to buy those. And so I don't know that that's Jesus' biggest problem here. Um, his 
teaching, I believe, is what sheds light on this. By the way, it is kind of odd that it says he's driving them out and he's flipping things over and it says, and he was teaching them as he goes, which I always just think is kind of a funny thing to see Jesus like, just be like, and for my second point, and throwing something over and, you know, you know punching an ox or something like that in the middle of saying these things. Um, so it, I just think that that's odd, but that's, again, a, a little bit of a cue that Jesus isn't, this isn't just a temper tantrum. Jesus is teaching him. He's making a point here. Here's, there's something that he's trying to declare. And so his main quote is from Isaiah. He quotes from two places. The first is Isaiah 56, 7. Um, so I want us to go there, actually. I want us to check the context. When, when, when people in the Bible, specifically when the Jewish people around other Jewish people, quote from the Scriptures, uh, they kind of can assume that everyone around them will pick up on the context. Like when, when people hear Jesus say this, they know, they probably know where that comes from. And they know the context of that verse. They know what's going on in there. And we may even, for all we know, Jesus may have quoted more of Isaiah 56. And Mark just chooses to pick up on verse 7 here as he says it. Um, I want us to read uh, out loud verses, I'll read verses 3 through 7 so you can get an idea of what Isaiah 56 is about says, No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, The Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, Look, I am a dried up tree, for the Lord says this, For the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. And as for the foreigner who joins themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to become his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold firmly to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain, that is, that's the mountain where the temple is, and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my, offer, uh, my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, the Jewish understanding was, and this is even goes back into the Levitical law, that not everybody could come into the temple area. Um, that you had to be ceremonially pure, you had to be like whole, there couldn't be, um, you couldn't be maimed in any sort of way, and the idea was that the temple is a perfect place, and therefore perfection is what needs to be there. There also weren't allowed to be like uh, anyone with like major diseases, and definitely no Gentiles or foreigners. Um, where Jesus is doing a lot of this flipping over the tables would be in the court of Gentiles. If you were there a couple weeks ago in our sermon at Sunnybrook through Ephesians 2, we talked about the wall that surrounded uh, the courts um, that, that would not allow any of the Gentiles to go past, otherwise they would be killed. And, and the understanding um, was that one day, Isaiah made this odd prophecy that God was actually going to let Gentiles be a part of this and be a part of the temple worship and, and the outcasts and all those things. And Jesus has been doing this throughout his ministry, drawing in those people that others would, would deem unworthy of the kingdom, unworthy of true religion, and, and even reaching out to Gentiles. And here he comes in and does this. Um, Israel, the design is that Israel was meant to be, when God called Abraham, said that Abraham and Israel, his people, were meant to be a blessing to the world. But much of what they did is they used the blessings that God had given them, and rather than pouring them out to the world, they hoarded them to themselves. 
And the temple was a perfect example of this. It had become this nationalistic shrine that proves that we're better and we have this spot and no one else better even try to come near it and be a part of it. And Jesus comes and he breaks that up. But that's not the only verse that he quotes. And this one is the one that's really fascinating to me. He also quotes from Jeremiah 7.11. When he says, uh, you have made this into a den of robbers. That's where we get that quote from. That's where we get that phrase. Now, I had always thought uh, that when Jesus said that, uh, you have made this place into a den of robbers, I always assumed that he was talking about the way that like the people who were selling in the temple courts were ripping people off. They were sitting there in the temple, they were robbing people blind by charging these exorbitant prices for the, the animals or by doing insane exchange rates that was basically ripping everybody off. It was robbing them. And so Jesus was saying, hey, you're robbing people here in the temple. That's what I always assumed was happening. Uh, but if you look into the context, then you'll see that this is something different going on. By the way, and, and even the phrase itself, a den of robbers... Okay, and this is, I remember a, a sermon Jim Johnson preached years ago that opened my eyes to this. Uh, a robber's den is not where robbers go to steal. It's where they go to hide out. It's where they go to be safe. So he's not accusing them of stealing in the temple. He's accusing them of hiding out in the temple. Here's what Jeremiah 7, uh, we'll read just verses 9 through 11 says, do you, Jeremiah is, God is speaking through Jeremiah to the Israelite people, all right? And he's saying, you're not living in accordance with my law. You're not living the covenant that you were supposed to. And here's what he says. Do you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods that you have not known? And then, do you come and stand before me in this house that bears my name and say, we are rescued so we can continue doing all these detestable acts? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it. This is the Lord's declaration. And if you were to go a little bit further in there, what you see is that the people, he says that uh, the people are choosing to go their way of God, or go away from God. They're, being, they're oppressing the poor. They're not having justice. But they keep crying out these words. And Jeremiah repeats it three times. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. And he says you can't do that. You can't call out the temple of the Lord whenever you're doing these things and think that you're okay. The, the point that Jeremiah is making to his people there and that Jesus is then making is you cannot live your life in constant rebellion against God and then think that you are safe within your religious rituals. You can't say, hey, it's okay, we got the temple. Nothing bad's going to happen to us as long as we got the temple. As long as we come here and we offer sacrifices, sure, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm treating people unjustly. Sure, I'm committing adultery. Sure, I may offer a few sacrifices to Baal, but that's okay because I go and make it right by making my sacrifices to God. And so as long as I'm doing that, as long as this still stands, as long as we're taking care of the temple, we're fine. And Jeremiah says, no, no, no. Don't think that God can't see past that. In fact, that's how it ends. It says, yes, I too have seen it. Now, there's a chance that that's why Mark includes that last little verse in the triumphal entry. Verse 11, Jesus walks in and he sees it. He walks in and he looks around, just like God sees all the wickedness in the temple back in Jeremiah's day. God, once again, this time in the flesh, looks around and sees everything that's happening in the temple. And then he goes 
and and he um, and he wreaks havoc on it. Now, the reason that we probably don't want to call this the cleansing of the temple is because cleansing implies that Jesus is trying to purify it, that he's trying to reform it so it will serve its proper purpose now. That doesn't seem to be what Jesus is doing. Jesus is declaring judgment on the temple. Jesus is saying, I'm, we're done, I'm done with this. We're done with this. And that's what, we'll, that's what we can see here in the next story. Um, let me get back to it in Mark 11. Starting in 19, okay, Mark 11:19 says, When every evening came, they would go out of the city. And then early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So now we're on Tuesday. This is, Sunday was triumphal entry. Uh, Monday was, uh, uh, so Monday was the first day they walked in, and I think we're on Tuesday morning now. And we learn the rest of the story that Jesus has actually cursed this thing and caused it to die. This is, by the way, Jesus' only destructive miracle. And it's also his last one, um, at least that Mark records. The last miracle Mark records, he, he does not for once bring life, instead he brings death. Um, and what Jesus or what Mark does is he uses he does this several times in his book. Um, some people call it a Markin sandwich. He he uses the sandwiching technique where he takes two sides of a story and he divides them up and puts something in between them as a way of saying these two things interpret this. So when you read these and get these, then you understand this. Um, and so uh, he's showing uh, basically this is what happens. Um, Jesus sees a tree that is not bearing fruit, and he curses it. Jesus sees a temple that is not bearing fruit, and he curses it. And then you come here, and you see that when Jesus curses something, judgment comes down on it. Which leads you to believe, even though you don't see it necessarily, you'll see it in his words here, but that just, it's, it's like Mark going, hint, hint. So if he cursed the tree, you saw what happened to it now, when Jesus pronounces judgment on the temple, you can expect that the same outcome will take place for it as well. Um, the last few verses of this section says, Jesus replied to them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive your wrongdoing. So at first, it appears that Jesus is kind of going off on this tangent on prayer. What does this have to do with the fig tree? Why is, why is Jesus going there with this? But I think that this is actually connected to the whole temple narrative as well. He says, if you say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea. Now, usually we hear that and we just think, oh, he's just talking about just mountains in general. You, just, you have enough faith, you can go to any mountain, cast it into the sea. But, but if, if you put, put yourself where Jesus and his disciples are, okay, there's two mountains in view. One is the Mount of Olives that they might be probably coming down at this moment. And the other mount would be what? The Temple Mount. Mount Zion. So there's a good chance that Mark, Jesus is literally pointing at the Temple Mount when he says these words. Um, 
and, and pointed them at this thing. Now, the Jews regarded the temple as this place where prayers were particularly effective, which makes sense, right? This is where God is. He's there in the temple. He's in the Holy of Holies. My prayers, I mean, if, if there's any way where, where prayers are going to really work, it's going to be right here at the temple. But Jesus has just prophesied judgment on the temple. He says it's going away, but here he, he, he makes clear that this will not hinder prayer at all. That the removal of the temple will not hinder connection to God. That's not where your connection to God is. Instead, it will be based on faith, which is what Paul talks about, or which is what Jesus talks about here, believing in prayer and forgiveness. That's what the connection to God in, in the way of Christ is. It's based on the forgiveness that we experience and then offer to others and the faith that we have in Christ is where our connection to God is. So we see from this story two ideas that are kind of overlapping and connected. Uh, two key things to, to catch from this. The first is uh, this idea. Um, that is, we don't have anything like a temple today, but people still have their dens. And so the idea would be, would be beware of dens in which people hide out. Where of dens in which people, we don't have a temple. And, and there's nothing like it. I mean, the closest we could try to get is Jesus walking into, uh, I mean, I guess it would be if a man walked into Sunnybrook and started throwing things over and flipping over the pulpits and the instruments and, and, and knocking over greeters' uh, stands and tables and all that kind of stuff, we, we would think that that was crazy and we would think that that was offensive. And that gets a little bit at it. And if, and if one walked into the state capitol and started just throwing stuff over and tearing things up. We think that guy's crazy. He's definitely going to jail, by the way. Um, all of those things. The, what Jesus is doing is kind of a combination of those things and more. We don't have anything exactly like this that was so central to their lives, as was the temple. Um, but we do still have dens. Um, so, back when I was a kid, uh, we used to play tag. You guys probably never had to play tag. You guys probably had, you know something with a screen in your hands or something cool to play. We didn't have, when, back in my day, we didn't have anything to play with with screens. We had to play tag. And every direction you ran in tag was uphill um, and in the snow. Uh, so we used to play tag all the time. And, and I remember playing tag, and you would always have one spot that was base, right? Um, and, and I also remember every time you played tag, there was always that one kid that never left base, um, which like defeated the whole purpose of the game. I was just stuck there on base and just held on to that. And so uh, kids, of course, have to come up with clever ways to prevent this kind of stuff. And so we came up with the magical phrase, uh, one, two, three, get off my father's apple tree. All right? And, and when you said that, I don't, it's kind of weird the, the rules that kids agree on, right? You just say that, and the kid's like, I guess I got to get off now. That's the, he, said, he said the apple tree thing. I can't hang on to this here. But, but so you used to say that stuff because if not that that kid always ran over and grabbed and said, I'm on base. I'm on base. You can't get me now. I'm on base. And they would spend the whole time holding on to declaring that they're on base and doing those things. Um, what Jesus seems to be describing as he quotes Jeremiah 7 is a group of people who think that they can get away with whatever because they just keep calling out, Temple of the Lord, I'm on base. Can't get me. And what has happened is this very thing that was meant to be a connection to God was becoming a way for them to hide from Him. It was becoming their protection against Him. And I do think that there are ways that we do this today, that we can sometimes use good things, that we can sometimes use God things to hide ourselves from God, to continue living the way that we're living as long as, I mean, I do go to church every week, though. 
There are a lot of people who tell themselves, in spite of the fact that there is nothing in their lives that looks like they are a Christian. Uh, dude, I, I go to church every Sunday when the doors are open. Uh, it's less of a thing than it used to be. That used to be a really big deal. People, people could go to church and do nothing else and feel good about themselves. But that's still a thing. Uh, maybe for some people it's religious, uh, other religious rituals like praying every day. Or yes, I do a lot of bad stuff, but, but every day I make sure to confess that to God. I do my little devotions and I tell Him I'm sorry for all that stuff. And, and I mean, it, you know, it's just no one's perfect, so I kind of live my life how I live it. But, and, and God and I, we got a little bit of an agreement And I come and I tell him I'm sorry and he's good with it. Um, There are a lot of people who live like that. For some, it is just being a good person. If you were to point out to them the sin in their life, and yes, I do some bad things, and yes, I probably shouldn't shouldn't be sleeping with my girlfriend, or I probably shouldn't lie about those things when it comes to like my taxes or or cheat in school stuff. But I mean, overall, I'm a good person. Like I do, if you watch me, I'm nice. I I care about people. I, I treat people well. And what they're doing in their moment is they're hiding themselves and their sin, tucking it away and behind their good deeds as though this is base. And I can kind of do whatever I want as long as I can still kind of hold on to this card. I'm a good person. I do good things. For some people, it's simply spirituality. And, and there are a number of people who, who don't want much to do with Jesus or the Word or the church, but they, they're spiritual. They're spiritual in their own way. And I connect with God in my own way, out, outdoors or whatever that may be. And that becomes their hiding place from God. For Christians, it can even be grace. Or what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. Where because I know that Jesus died for me, that means it's kind of okay for me to do whatever I got to do. I mean, I know, I, know, I know God doesn't want me to do these things, to, to look at porn or to gossip or to whatever, but I mean, I mean, Jesus, I'm forgiven, right? I said the prayer. I got baptized. And, and we might not say it that bluntly, uh, but, but that can be an easy thing for us to hide in cheap grace. There are mean things that we hold to as a bit of a security blanket while continuing in our sin. And this leads to this second uh, thought that really does overlap with it. And that is this, that Jesus desires fruitfulness, not busyness. And by busyness, I don't mean uh, productive. I mean like religious busyness and, or Christian busyness. The temple was a very busy place. There's a lot going on in the temple, a lot of very important and religious type stuff. It was very impressive. It was easy to walk into the temple and look at all the people praying and look at the offerings being dropped in and look at the priests going about their duties and offering the sacrifices and be impressed by all the pomp and circumstance and be, repl- uh, be impressed by all the, uh, the religiosity and the piety in this place. Look at all that's going about. But the truth is, there was not much fruitfulness to it. It was religiously busy. Stuff happening constantly. But at the heart level, no change was taking place. And, and there are places that can be like that today. Churches can be like that. There are churches that can have all kinds of programs, good programs, doing all kinds of stuff within the church and within the community to serve different things. And there can be, um, they can have growing numbers and more and more people showing up every Sunday and growing. They can have all kinds of committees that are handling things and settling things. They can have uh, pastors who are, who are well-known and respected in the evangelical world or in the Christian world and, and travel around and speaking and doing all these things. But there might be in those churches at the exact same time that all of this stuff is going on, no real lasting fruit. 
No real discipleship or transformation taking place in anybody's lives, just gathering a bunch of people together. It's not just churches that can be like that, though people can be like that. Individuals can be like that. In fact, uh, Scott and I talk about this, that we've, we've seen a number of students like this come through our ministry. Students that while they were here, we thought were doing really well because they came to everything. Every time the doors were open, they were at the table. And they were involved. And not just like the fun stuff. They were coming to the Bible studies and table groups. And they were going on missions trips. I mean, they're, they're, they're giving up their spring break to go to missions trips and to serve people. And, and, and if you asked us in the moment, I think Scott and I are getting a little bit better at this kind of stuff, at gauging this now. But if you asked us in the moment, we would have said, that student's doing great. They are going to do well when they leave here. And then we see, we've seen a number of those students step away from campus and just fizzle out. And what we realized is all they were was busy. There wasn't anything, there wasn't any real fruitfulness going. They were like a fig tree that had all the leaves on it. Looked like something was going on from a distance. But if you were to go up and look, there's no real change taking place, no long-term discipleship. And what the table provided was activities for them. And what the table provided was friends for them. And even really good feelings because I'm showing up. I mean, it's not just anything that I'm doing. I'm going to Bible studies. I'm serving. I'm going on missions trips. And, and so it's like a fraternity that I can feel really good about at the same time that I'm doing those things. They were doing Jesus things, but no real lasting fruit, no real heart change was taking place in them. Keller, when he discusses this section of Scripture in his little book on, on Mark, he asks these series of questions, um, just, just going, is there fruit in you? Is there change in you? So he asks questions like, are you a person who struggles with anger? If so, that's all right. All of us are going to have something we struggle with. But the question is, is it evident to people around you that this is something that you're conquering by the power of the Holy Spirit? Is lust something that has always tripped you up? If so, okay. We all have things that, that trip us up from time to time. But... Is it obvious? Can you see where there is real holiness that is taking place as the Spirit has more and more sway over your life? Is there fruit there? Are you a person who is often overcome by anxiety and fear or selfishness or pride or that you struggle to forgive people? Listen, all of us will have our things. And, and even some of those things are complicated. When we start talking about things like anxiety, recognizing that there's more than just spiritual things. Sometimes there's psychological things and all those. So, so it, it can be complicated. But the, the question is not, is that in my life? We all have things in our life. The question is, is there fruit do I see the Holy Spirit taking more and more of that from me? Do I see myself being formed into the character of Christ more and more? If the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, are those, are those things becoming increasingly manifest in my life? Or am I just busy? Am I just doing a lot of stuff and it looks really good? from the outside. It looks good to me, but I feel good about it. But the truth is, there's not much fruit going on. There's not real lasting change. Here is, uh, I'll, I'll end with good news. Uh, the good news is that when John tells this story, Jesus goes and uh, wrecks shop in the temple, and the authorities come to him and they say, 
what gives you the right to do this? They actually, in, in John, they say, give us a sign. Show us why you should be allowed to do these things. And Jesus says, here's the sign. Uh, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll bring it back. And, and they think he's crazy. It, it, it took decades to build this thing. You think you're going to build it back up in three days, but John goes on to clarify and says, he wasn't talking about the physical structure. He was talking about this temple. Jesus was saying in that moment, this is the new place where God meets man. And when he dies on the cross, um, this will become more evident when the temple veil rips in half. Okay? And Jesus is declaring, this is it. And because of that, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, because Jesus is the new connection, because Jesus is the new temple, we know these two things. One, there is grace for us in our failures. Two, there is power for us to bear fruit. There's power for us to overcome the things that seem to trip us up over and over again. Uh, because Jesus has made a way through His death and resurrection, through the sending of His Holy Spirit, um, to make us not just busy, not just spiritual, but fruitful. Who don't have to hide out in our good deeds, in our religiosity, or in whatever else it may be. Um, but can be fully trusting God as we look to Him with the life that He's producing within us. Let me pray. We'll be done. God, what we say to you in this is not, is not, uh, I don't want us to walk away promising we'll just do better, God. Um, because the real and lasting fruit that we're talking about is the result of the Holy Spirit. And so we do, I hope, I pray that my brothers and sisters here with me recommit ourselves to greater holiness and fruitfulness. But at the same time, Lord, we confess um, our need for you in that, that you are the one who makes that possible, and that without your Holy Spirit, it will just be busyness. And so I pray, Lord, that you would do that in us. Um, help us to bear real fruit in keeping with repentance. Help us to be real disciples that look like Jesus. I ask you that in his name. Amen. All right. Thanks, guys.